group, you uh, you're kicking back now with a, a nice a nice beverage of your choice. Uh, your feet up on the sofa, uh, uh, looking forward to an hour uh, chat about science, uh, science in the news. And I'm only smiling because I know to some people this would be a ridiculous idea, but not when you're with us because we are complete and utter morons. And if we can understand what we're talking about, uh, so can you. So, oh yes, yeah, sorry, I have to speak just for myself. I am a complete and utter moron. Uh, and I, I, I am uh, joined by the extremely uh, well-travelled Hannah Bestwick. Oh, Hannah thank Bestwick. you. Yes. I, where did and, that come from? Well, you know, I was just thinking, where, where, had, where were you talking about last week? Oh, yes, Madeira. Oh, of course, yes. Madeira, they, of course. They, they, there you go. Um, and uh, the astronomical Andrew Glaston. Hello. Yes. Hello, Hello. Malcolm. You know, you, I don't want to be rude, Malcolm, but you can get very far in the world as a complete moron. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you this can. True. That's yeah. absolutely you true. To that should, end, actually, Malcolm. We should, we should devote a whole programme to that. <laughs> uh, to that end, it was your birthday yesterday, Malcolm. What? Y- yes, it was. Happy birthday. Oh, a, pr- a gift? Yeah, live on the air. Oh, my. Very He's nice. got to pretend he likes it now, <laughs> hasn't he? Oh, my. Can, can, I, can I open it? No, I am no. opening again. Now, what's slightly disturbing about this is wrapped in brown paper. Yes. Uh, which I, means you could be slightly ashamed of carrying it around I, in the it's, street. It's mainly because of recycling. That's oh, I see. Oh, nice. well, that's, that's really good. Let's see what it Let is. Let me have a look. Let me have a look. It had to be. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I see. I know what this is. Well, thank you. This is my copy of Fire and Fury by Michael Wolfe inside the Trump White House, oh. uh, which I saw oh. only yesterday dismi- dismissed... Uh, by uh, a fox. Oh yes. As a complete pile of bleep. Okay. Well, let's see what this has. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't think it is. Yeah. So uh, I'm be looking forward to reading that. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're this very is very, very entertaining yeah, reading. Very yes. Well, there we go. But thank you. And um, I, that I still haven't got to um, our guest, uh, uh, who's joined us in the in the s- studio. He's the. He will be the extra voice uh, you'll hear today, Ben Sykes. Hello. I should say the speedy Ben Sykes. Thanks for having me on the show. The high-speed Ben Sykes is uh, going to be talking to us about Bloodhound. Uh, Not Bloodhounds, but Bloodhound, which is the uh, world land speed record. And... um, we're looking forward to hearing about that updated because it's very much to do with the southwest, isn't it? It is. Ben? It's based at Avon Maths, yeah. technical centre. Yeah, so really, really close to uh, where we are. Uh, we can hear it firing up in the mornings. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk. <laughs> we'll talk. We'll uh, maybe that's my stomach. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, uh, talk to you about that in in a little bit. Um, let me just uh, uh, come back here. So, Hannah, any more travelling since I saw you last? Uh, no, no, actually, not much travelling at all. I, I had a very quiet weekend. I watched the final episode of Westworld, which Andrew will oh, be yeah. very, uh, very happy about. It was so yes. good. It's Isn't such it? a good show. Did, did you have a break between the, the penultimate and the final one, then? Yeah, of like, th- of like three weeks or How something. How did you manage that? Uh, poorly. I managed it very poorly. Yeah, I had to stay away from just like looking it up. Yeah. It was very tempting. Yeah, I can imagine I had an interesting conversation the other day. I was, I was talking to uh, someone, someone in, in our family, actually, and we were talking about the, the difference between uh, science fiction. So we should say that our, our programme is about science, and it's about science news, and it's about things that actually are happening. But science fiction, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm with perfect, audio, perfect uh, people here uh, to ask you this. I sort of distinguish between science 
uh, fiction and science fantasy in the sense that science fantasy is about stuff that's just made up mm-hmm. and science fiction is about, well, we probably, this is in accordance with the laws of mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. and this, even if we can't do it now, we might be able to do it in the future and so is that is that how you, you guys look at it? Uh, uh, personally, I, uh, yeah, similar. I, I think there's... Um you can't really put too many things in, in, in boxes. Something like Star Wars, I think, is fantasy and science fiction at times, and, and fantasy at others. Yeah. Something like Star Trek would go more towards the science fiction and less towards the fantasy. But occasionally there's a bit of fantasy in yeah. there as well. I, I, I kind of like the hard science fiction um, definition where it's everything in it has to be based on hard science, proper science, something yeah. like... Uh, Ex Machina, for example. Ex Machina, good, good example, Gattaca, The Martian, something like that. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, I love that kind of stuff, but I also love totally fanciful nonsense. Really. Yes, indeed, yeah. There's no reason why you c- we can't enjoy that, but there are interesting distinctions yeah, there yeah, between sure. those things. Ah. So, um, uh, and, and, and Ben... Science, and it's not science fiction now that uh, we're going for this 1,000 miles. Is, is it still 1,000 miles? It's still 1,000, or, or yes, in new money, 1,600 kilometres per hour. <laughs> um, so, so let's be clear then. So the land speed record is currently what? It's currently 763 miles per hour. That's far. You and get that, downtown in Bristol. That, right? that was, uh, that was <laughs> set way, way back in 97. Was it really? And it's stood since then. Where, but where, by where the very same driver, Andy Green, who's going, going for the new... Where did, he, where did he do that? So he did that in um, Black Rock Desert in the US. Right. Okay, and and uh, so we're going for seven hundred and seven fifty. That sort of. So sorry, you just gave a precise figure, what, which I instantly forgot. So ultimately, forgot. <laughs> the Bloodhound project is going for a thousand yeah. miles per hour. Yeah, so it's up to about um, about two hundred and fifty miles an it, hour. It can actually. It's designed to do about a thousand and fifty. So right, uh, it can go beyond a thousand miles an hour. Um, but um, they're going to do it in stages. Um, and the very first stage of that happened um, just back in October down in Newquay. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to catch up with you about that, about, about where we are with it. But I, I, I need to recap, first of all. So going really fast, this is something that human beings like, like to do. So setting records this is a very human uh, kind of thing, you know, the, uh, uh, to go the highest, to go the deepest, uh, uh, endurance records and so on go the fastest but um this actually has uh, the the idea of going at a thousand miles an hour or more on land has a bigger purpose doesn't it to just getting uh, um a, 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 some kind of record in the guinness book of records it, it, it does um the engineers involved in the project consider that this might be the ultimate speed you can do with a car on land and the engineering challenges are, are such that completely new ground has to be broken with science and engineering to do this. And so they're using the project primarily as an educational exercise, particularly um, it's all about inspiring a new generation of children and particularly girls into, yeah. into science and engineering careers. Right. OK. And um, do you have any figures about how many people have actually got involved in, in helping to uh, create this record? So um, the crowds that attended the first runs um, were, were three and a half thousand on, on each day, but the wider membership um, of, of, of Bloodhound is, is, is in the tens of thousands. Right. So, so these are the observers, so like 
3,000 or so people turned out on, on to, each of to, the three days. To, uh, yeah. So where were they doing the these runs, these yeah. trial runs? So the runs were in, at the end of October, they're in Newquay in Cornwall, <laughs> the old um, RAF St Morgan airfield, which oh, is where the, one of that. the Nimrod squadrons used yeah. to be based. I know RAF St Morgan, yeah. Well, it's now a civil airfield, Newquay, mm. uh, Newquay Cornwall Airport, I think yeah. is the official title, but yeah. it has one of the mm. longest runways in the UK. That's a good job, isn't it? And yeah. But, yeah. And being very quiet, it was the only option for, for any kind of test run in the UK. Mm, quiet no longer. Um, yeah. So, in, <laughs> indeed, I think they could have... The only longer runways are at Heathrow and Bryce Norton, but they're not going to shut those, are yeah, they? No, for an hour no, and a half. no, 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 they're, they're not. So, um, uh, the, the way you get a car to travel at that at that kind of speed. I mean, I understand that it's very, very similar to the problem that we had when uh, Jack Kennedy said we're going to send a man to the moon, uh, his words, um, by the end of the decade. He said, that, I think, in 1960, 1961, something like that. No one knew how to do that. And it's the same with this, isn't it? That, that there's some technology that we, we just don't have and we don't know. That's yet right. How to and do it, it. It's, it's the combination of thrust that's required to, to break through that barrier because friction, bit of science here, friction increases at the cube of velocity. So the faster you go, ah. the stronger the drag. Right. And at 1,000 miles an hour, it's estimated that Bloodhound will create 20 tons of drag. Right. So it needs 21 tonnes of thrust yeah. to, to overcome that. And wow. the way it does that is by combining the jet engine of a Eurofighter Typhoon yeah. with um, a rocket. Yeah. Wow. So a hybrid fuel rocket. And, and the two um, together will, will... They're designed to get Bloodhound through that 1,000 miles per hour barrier. All right, so where where are we now then? Do do are all the bits in place? Is it just a so matter all the bits of meeting in, schedules? It, and it, so it, on? It's a matter of continued testing and upping the speed. So the test runs were successful beyond the Bloodhounds team's dreams, really in Newquay because they, they hit two hundred and ten miles per hour. They tested the brakes. They tested the steering systems. Um, the car's bristling with um, 500 sensors. They've got a wealth of data to pour through. Um, and they've got a functioning vehicle. Bloodhound is go, essentially, um, is, is, is the PR line, if you like. And, and uh, so now this year, they're going to South Africa to push on with the jet engine only at the moment um, and work towards incorporating the rocket perhaps next year. Um, but this year in South Africa... They shall go to a salt pan called Hackskeen Pan. It's right in the northwest corner of South Africa, in a, just in a little pocket sandwiched between the Botswana and Namibia borders. And there's a 12-mile-long salt pan that's been cleared of every stone down to about the size of a pinhead. It's flat. That, that would terrify it's, me. It's hard that and would, it's perfect. For that the, would terrify me because you imagine some bird... Just, you know, flying over and just dropping something on there, you know, or a twig or something, you know. How on earth do you keep it clear? So this is where they've enlisted the help of the people of the, the North Cape. So there's huge enthusiasm in South Africa for this. Yeah. And uh, it was a team of locals who first cleared this, this 12 miles of track, about 300. Yeah. Um, and they've been keeping it clean ever since. It's not going to take a car travelling at 1,000 miles an hour to, to cover 12 miles, is it? 
Um, I mean, it, we could do the maths now, but uh, it, was it will be. I mean, it well. will run. It will get to a thousand miles an hour in fifty-five seconds. Yeah. Whoa. But then he's. <laughs> but then Andy has to slow down oh. as well. Yeah. And, and meet the refueling and checking team. Yeah. Within that twelve miles, turn the car around in an hour, and do it again because of the rules of land speed world record making. Right. Okay. You have okay. to do it twice. That's right. right. Amazing. And so, um, t what what is the procedure then? So, so uh, you've you've got to uh, the, the, the car has to cover. Does it have to cover a certain? So the length? car. It's not about distance. The car. You just have to have as long a track as you can possibly have. The right. car has to accelerate to a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Um, safely, mm. um, it goes through a, a measured mile. Um, so there are officials from the FIA who will be monitoring this. goes through a measured mile. Then Andy has to decelerate uh, safely with braking and parachutes, air parachutes, um, and stop precisely where the recovery team is. They then have to refuel the rocket and the jet engine, run checks on the vehicle, turn him round inside an hour, and put him back through a second measured mile so that the FAI officials can produce an average of the speeds through the measured mile and that's how you nail wow. a world land speed record wow incredible and they've done the team have done this before in 97 yeah. when they hit 763 yeah, yeah. so they know they, they know, know what, what they're doing do. yeah pretty much the same team and as you say andy green is the is the pilot who is he so andy green is a former raf fighter pilot um what armstrong called the right stuff definitely <laughs> and was was recruited to the project through a very rigorous competitive recruitment process um, and he I've met him and he has um, incredible self-control and he needed that in Newquay mm. because he's in such a powerful vehicle he could have gone way past mm. 210 miles per hour, per hour at Newquay mm. the vehicle can do that now but he wouldn't have been able to stop in time and yeah. it, there would have probably been curtains at the end of the runway yeah. and that would have been the end of Bloodhound it's a one-off um, if he were to write it off, it's, there's no coming back. So yeah. safety is paramount, and, and he has to be off the throttle, or he had to be off the throttle at Newquay, precisely the right time to stop overshooting the runway. Very brave. Can yeah. I just ask, you know you said that they, um, they're specifically focusing on women in engineer yeah. engineering, um, trying to get girls involved. How are, they, how are they doing that? What have they been doing to focus on girls? So um, th th they've been, there is a, an entire education team based yeah. out of Avonmouth that are going around schools and, and they, are, they are using um, female ambassadors. So Jess Herbert um, is, is a female ambassador from Rolls-Royce and she's been doing a lot um, with the education team to help inspire um, young girls into considering engineering and science careers. Yeah, so, so they're going around um, or sort of starting the conversation with this is Bloodhound, it's going to go this fast and we work on it sort of thing? Or? Yes, and, and they, uh, they actually take um, a, a, a modelling team out with them and they get kids to build their own rockets and test fire them in, in the playground. It's an inspirational team when it comes to sort of talking to kids about uh, science and engineering. And just following up on what Hannah's uh, asking there, um, there's a story around, I think it's on the BBC uh, news uh, website at the moment. It's not, it's not news, it's not hard news, but somebody's done a feature. And they're saying um, that um, of British engineers, only one of those in 10 
is a woman. Correct. And so uh, this project has said, as its stated aim, it wants to bring uh, more uh, w women in. Do you, so uh, y you've said that there's somebody there in place who's working on this, but do you think it's been successful? Because, because the re reason is that part of the criticism of this is this has been very much a, 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 a sort of male, sort of testosterone-driven project. You, I, I you, can't provide you, you with specific figures. Yeah, figures on, on, on girls going into engineering, but the overall figures of children um, who have signed up for GCSE courses in science, um, the education team have got some hard figures on, on that. So yeah. they've got some a few metrics yeah. on the number of children that have been inspired by Bloodhound yeah, yeah. to, to take science and engineering. So it will subjects. have gone some way in meeting um, that. So it's certainly having yeah. impact. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bloodhound, uh, which is uh, being um, uh, built, designed and built in uh, Avonmouth down here in the southwest. And uh, we've got Ben Sykes with us. But Ben, why, why are you talking about this? Because uh, you need to tell us what your involvement uh, with it is. So I, I made a film with Hannah, hey. in fact, oh. um, on, on the Bloodhound pro project as part of um, our master's um, in science communication. At UWE. So this was back in February, March yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my career aspirations around doing this master's were to set up as a freelance science writer and communicator. Right. And I ended up freelancing for Bloodhound throughout October when the test runs were happening down in Newquay. So building on the knowledge I'd gained from, from our Hannah and my research and the rest of our team for that film, um, I was able to chip in for them. And, and so... Excellent. I've kind of become quite knowledgeable about these Excellent. things when you're yeah. involved, and the pa and the passion comes through. That's that, that's that's great. Um, so tell us about that test because uh, uh, it must have been very emotional, you know, seeing everything come together. It was. It must have been emotional for Richard Noble as well because that's the first time he'd seen the vehicle. He's, in, he's the man in the flesh. He, he's busy. Richard, just to say, Richard. He's Noble the director is. of the Bloodhound Project. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. He's busy chasing all over the world, trying to get sponsorship. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this was the first time he, he'd seen it. But um, the ground shook. The, the the power of the jet engine and the afterburner as it achieves 210 miles an hour inside eight seconds is quite hard to describe on on radio you, yeah. you, you need to see the videos on the bloodhound website and yeah, yeah. with sound turned up because it's quite it's quite spectacular yeah and actually that raises an interesting question so if anybody listening to this says well i'm i want to know more about this and i want to know well, is there some way i could get involved or whatever is what's the answer to that yes go to the bloodhound website bloodhound.ssc.com um you can the, the new twitter handle um is bloodhound uh, hashtag bloodhound 500 that's for the um, the preparations for the runs in south africa in october november this year um, you can sign up for newsletters you can become uh, a member there are various grades of membership you can support um, the Bloodhound Project, so... Okay. All right. Thank you very much indeed. So, now, uh, has this for a segue. The one thing you won't be doing when you're driving the Bloodhound is drinking. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, won't be yeah. drinking alcohol. That kinda, that That's a works. really bad thing to do. <laughs> what about works. that? Uh, Chris Evans said, never... It's best not to make a link than a really terrible link. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I've just broken that rule. You've ruined it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so... Uh, that one of the one of the stories is that we uh, wanted to talk about that's going around today, is that alcohol actually can cause irreversible genetic 
damage. Uh, Hannah, you've uh, yeah, I had a quick you, read over this. this. It's really what's, interesting. What? It's um, so alcohol is is linked to certain kinds of cancers, alcohol consumption. Yeah, um, and they've sort of been trying to work out why, what aspect of drinking alcohol is linked to that. Yeah, and what they what they have sort of found is that there's a a, a breakdown product of alcohol called with me acetaldehyde oh, yes. and um, this causes it causes damage to the genetic material in your cells like it it um, damages it breaks it up yeah and you have two-step process which uh, co- sort of is in place in most people uh, to reverse that damage that's caused uh, the first one is that uh, we the product is cleared away from your blood and then the damage itself is repaired in the cells mm. But if you, um, so the, in the experiment, they genetically modified mice to have um, a defect in one of those steps. And they found that if you've got a defect in the first step uh, of clearing away the product, the damage to the cell, to the genome lasts much longer. Right. And damage to a genome can result in cells behaving abnormally, which is also a, a way that cancer arises, is that they, they multiply too quickly or they're uncontrolled in their multipl- like the way they um, duplicate themselves. Um, and this, what they found is that there's a, the alcohol, uh, sorry, the aldehyde dehydrogenase 2, which is in most people breaks down um, the alcohol in your blood, uh, the aldehyde in your blood, it is defective in about 8% of people, mostly of East Asian origin and um, uh, descent. And that could explain why there's higher... Uh, proportions of like esophageal cancers, which alcohol is linked yeah. to, in uh, countries such as China, where that um, the defect in the the um, the first step is more prevalent, slightly more prevalent yes. in those populations. It, it's it's interesting this as as well because um, one of the things I can, I can remember reading about this a, a, a while ago is that in terms of evolution. Mm. Uh, human human evolution. Um, human beings were faced with the problem of purifying water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, because you know, w- water famously carries bugs, and if you live in any kind of um, uh, large gathering of people, uh, there's a risk of, of pollution, yeah, disease, and things. Uh, and so, what are you going to do to keep the water pure? In in the east, in the far east, in places like China, they boiled water. Yeah. In Europe, we invented beer. and so uh, two completely different approaches but the implication for that is that all our people who weren't particularly uh, alcohol tolerant would have um, would not have survived yeah they they might have had a slightly uh, lower chance of surviving yeah yeah. and I wonder whether that has has any kind of connection with this kind of research yeah I'm I'm not sure I remember reading something that linked the um, the defective aldehyde dehydrogenase um, gene to uh, its arisal around the same time as domestication of rice when um, in eastern Asia when where um, alongside that came the introduction of, of also rice wine which is really strong yeah. and the effect of having this um, this defective gene is that you are 
you become very hot, you flush, you sweat, and being drunk is a really, really, like even slightly drunk is a really uncomfortable um, experience. Yeah. And it, there, is, there was in the article that I read a long time ago, it was a speculation that the gene had arisen as almost like a deterrent to alcoholism. Um, because it just makes it a really nasty time just having a drink. Um, I don't know if that's the most prevalent theory at the moment, um, but it was a few years ago when I was at uni. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, the, the report that uh, I've been looking at says alcohol consumption causes around 4% of cancers in the UK, or around 12,800 cases each year. Just one pint of lager or a large glass of wine a day significantly increases the risk of throat, uh, mouth, esophageal, breast, and bowel cancer. But there is no evidence that drinkers are, are at a substantially increased risk of blood cancer, say experts, despite the new findings showing that drinking can alter the DNA in blood stem cells. Yeah. So, how, um, yeah. how much do you drink in an evening? Um, I tend to have a glass of uh, wine in the evening, uh, but not every evening. And I sometimes, I quite often go a couple of days, I won't have any yeah. alcohol at all. Um, when I was younger, mm-hmm. I used to drink uh, quite a lot more. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be perfectly normal for me. Uh, what am I going to admit to here? Triple less, triple less. Well, I can remember when I got into media, you know, I, had yeah. a, I had a whole career in media, um, I got into the habit of drinking like uh, at least a bottle of wine mm. a night yeah which is so easy God. to do i yeah. i feel terrible when i drink yeah yeah when i was in madeira um ah. we had this drink called poncho which is um like a traditional local drink with some orange peel and things like that but it's got some alcohol in some spirits and i just i flushed red i was i felt sweaty i didn't yeah. feel drunk or happy yeah. i just felt very very uncomfortable so i wonder if um maybe i have this gene as well yeah defect. I, I i'm in that group of people i've i don't think i've ever had a hangover really yeah. uh, i should have, I, <gasps> I should envy you i should have had a great many yeah and there's a story about richard burton the actor you know the one who's married to uh, elizabeth taylor mm. uh, uh, and uh, he uh, said that one day he just woke up feeling having been a famous drunk oh, wow. woke up one day absolute desperate you know his eyes were red he felt ill he got a pounding headache he thought he was going to die and the doctor came to see him and said congratulations you have a hangover (laughs) 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 it was the first one he'd ever had no one would have believed but um hannah yeah i'm going to ask a really stupid tangential question um so you said the domestication of rice and in my head yeah um there was rice running wild people went out with packets put it in and then brought it into the house yeah kept it under What did you actually do? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, The uh, learning, learning, like, to farm it, to um, make agriculture from it. Um, Okay. So, it's. I think wild rice is different to the rice that we um, generally associate with, like what we'd buy in a supermarket, like long grain white rice. Yeah. It's different. So we um, would take a wild specimen and then over many years and generations, um breed it to be what we actually wanted to be and then farm it and that's that process of farming it is the domestication modified is it yeah you might say yeah. you might say gosh there's a thing who knew let's 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 do another uh, uh news story because um i know that ben has uh you're about to write a blog in your new role as a freelance science communicator uh, uh all about sleep 
And, of course, there's uh, another connection. So we've been talking about our health as related to alcohol. Um, you're, say, you're highlighting, sorry, you're not a sleep researcher, I know, but you're highlighting uh, research, which basically says sleep is incredibly important. Uh, it's kind of odd, isn't it, in our macho age where, you know, people saying, yes, yeah, so I just survive on three hours of sleep a night is seen as kind of, you know, the mark of uh, a warrior. Actually, that's not smart at all. It's, it's not. Actually, what, we're, what 20 years of sleep research is now revealing quietly is that that triangle of health, diet, exercise and sleep, is dominated far more by quality of sleep um, than we ever realised. You can, you can attend to diet and ex exercise, but if you don't attend to sleep, it will amount to nothing because of the kind of gene expression changes that go on in your body when you're sleep-deprived over an extended period of time. And, of course, in Western society, we're, we're all, all four of us here, probably sleep-deprived to some extent. Yeah. It's you, just, just a, a kind of epidemic of Western culture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you a good sleeper, Andrew? Uh, I do like to sleep. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> for sure. But um, I, I was just going to say, if, uh, if, if some of the children who are just arriving home from school or on the way home from school are listening to this, then, then do pay attention because it's important that your parents sleep at night. So <laughs> when you're thinking of calling out in the middle of the night and you could just turn over and go back to sleep, choose to just turn over <laughs> and go back to sleep. Are you, is this about anything in particular, an experience of yours or? Uh, no, not anymore. No, my, my little Lyra Bay is an excellent sleeper. Good. So, uh, thanks, Good. <laughs> I'm one of those very annoying people who gets into bed, shuts his eyes, and goes to sleep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. What, so, what, what about you, Hannah? I I sleep a lot. I need at least nine hours, otherwise I'm no no good to anybody the next day. Right. I can't can't really function on eight. You're uh, so good. That's what the researchers say exactly is needed for everybody. Yes, yeah. nice. And what um, about you, Ben? Are you um, practicing what you're preaching? I I need eight. I can get by on six for a few days before um, I get very grumpy. I think so. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I I I do need eight, and and that's what. The sleep researchers are saying and there's a great book out um, called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Um, I'm not plugging the book, but mm. it's a jolly good read if you want to understand modern sleep research, because this seems to be a conversation that's been missing from contemporary debates about health, yeah. um, the quality of your sleep and Is how much you need. Is it anything to do with the, the stress that it causes your body if you don't get enough sleep? Because I know the stress is really bad for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a study that Walker talks about at the University of Surrey mm. where they deprived six, um, a group of adults of, of a certain amount of sleep over a week. So they all had six hours, and they discovered um, that the expression of over 700 genes was changed just in a week. And some of those genes were increased in their activity, the ones that contribute to cardiovascular disease, and other genes were dampened. And the ones that were dampened were the ones that control your metabolism and your blood sugar levels mm. and keep you on an even keel. So, wow. um, compared with th the same group who slept eight hours a night for a yeah. week, th this, uh, th 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 there was a significant difference in the expression of these important groups of genes, yeah. metabolism and cardiovascular health. Absolutely. Uh, don't doze off. Always very good to have uh, your 
company. And uh, I'm joined, uh, as usual, by Hannah and Andrew. And we've got Ben Sykes uh, in the studio. He's been talking all about the Bloodhound Project. If you want to know about that, then uh, you can go to... The, tell us again the Bloodhound website. BloodhoundSSC.com. OK, and you can listen to our programme again. You just go to uh, BCFM Radio and uh, find uh, Love and Science, and you can listen again uh, to our uh, programme. And... Um, we have also uh, been talking about science in the news and w there's often this phrase knocked or, uh, bandied around called citizen science, which is basically getting regular people like uh, you and me involved in doing science, making observations. You have things downloaded onto your computer and all of that kind of stuff. And a rather exciting thing has happened. Uh, the headline to this particular story, it's a BBC story, is Citizen Science Bags Five Planet Hall. Yeah. That sounds exciting. That's what's, awesome, what, isn't it? what's happening, Andrew? Well, there's a, uh, well, as you say, Citizen Science, there's a website called Zooniverse, which you can go to, anybody can go to, log in, and it will teach you how to distinguish between um, get, you get the data from the Kepler Space Telescope which is a space telescope which is looking for dips in the light of stars so if a planet passes between us and well the Kepler Space Telescope and the star if a planet orbiting that star passes between it, us and it then obviously the light will dip now the thing is that there's an awful lot of data so what they do is they send this data out to the Zooniverse project where I don't know how many people it is uh, who are using it these days, but it's thousands of people who are on this website fl flicking through images, really, of, yeah. this, of this data yeah. from the Kepler Space Telescope. And they are teaching themselves, using the website, to be able to distinguish between what's just a noise bit of data and yeah. what is actually an exoplanet passing between us and the Kepler Space Telescope. Now, people using that piece of software, that citizen science website, have discovered a fifth planet in a system which they'd already discovered four in. So yeah. the there's a five-planet system. So there's a star, a sun, with five planets going around it, which has been discovered by, not by scientists, mm. it's been discovered by the Kepler Space Telescope, so we can't just say scientists had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> scientists and engineers made that. Yes. And, and of course, the website. But um, the... Um, People like you and I, yeah. like everybody listening, yeah. could be, if you go to Zooniverse, you could go and find planets orbiting other stars. Now, this particular um, system is particularly interesting because uh, the, the planets orbit in what's known as its, well, I'm going to look up the words because it's, it's maths, so I don't really do that, um, a resonance chain. Okay? Okay. Don't worry too much about that. What it cool. means is that. One, the, the nearest uh, planet to the star orbits at, say, let's say one speed, and then the next one at two speed, and the next one at three speed. Do you see what I mean? That there's, yeah. there's a correlation between those. But the fourth and fifth ones don't do that. Now, the way that orbits work, you would expect that the fourth and fifth would, be, would continue that sequence, but they don't, which suggests that there are other planets that we can't see yet, yeah, may well find in the data, which are affecting the pla the orbit of that fifth planet. So there could be even more planets than this. The other thing that's particularly interesting is, 
we, we, we like to think that we know what we, we're talking about with planetary formation. We think about gas and dust in a fairly chaotic state in the early uh, stages of, of planetary formation in a planetary system and coming together and forming planets which then sort themselves out into some kind of orbit. Now if, you, if that is the case, which it probably is, let's not get too ahead of ourselves here, but you wouldn't expect necessarily to see some, a, a system which is as closely packed as this one is. Mm. So it's, it's raising questions about how planetary formation is in the universe. Mm. The, the one thing I would say is there's, there's so many planets, there's so many stars. Even if it was completely random, surely one would be like this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, enough okay. possibility, yeah. potentially. So the site is called Zooniverse. So can you actually just, just look it up and say... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to sort of sign up to this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's do, a you, kind of do you do it yourself? I have done it. It's kind of, um, what, don't tell anyone, but what, what is a really good thing to do is to sit watching reruns of Star Trek on, on Netflix or something like that. Yeah. And uh, uh, just with your laptop in front of you, just flicking through. You've seen the Star Trek before. You don't need to pay too much attention. <laughs> just flicking through these images. And then you could, whilst watching Star Trek, discover a real planet orbiting another oh, star. Oh, wow. Good. Nice, nice. That is cool. Uh, I know how to live. Yeah, you yeah, do. You Living do. it up. You certainly do. Um, all right. Well, we'll, ju we'll, we'll jump from that. I mean, I'm going to do this. I'm, 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 I'm going to go home and do this because I'd love to have a planet called Malcolm just Malcolm out there wouldn't that be a great name for a planet <laughs> planet love planet that's an episode of Star Trek that would create a lot of confusion <laughs> yeah um, goodness me so uh, let's go to uh, another story we'll go we'll jump back to some biological stuff here because it's all connected orangutans apparently who are extremely uh, intelligent uh, primates, observed, have been observed using the same medicinal plants as humans uh, to treat joint pain. Yeah. Uh, this is a story which uh, we've uh, first seen in The Independent, but I'm sure it's carried in uh, various places. This is uh, fascinating. This, so we're beyond tools we're now talking, we're, we're now talking, talking medicine. about medicine. Yeah. And it's, it's distinct as well because they, uh, so the orangutan get this, um, this plant, the leaves of this plant, um, whose name I'm not going to try and say. Um, and it chews it and then uses like a, basically the, the, the spit that it's generated chewing this to rub onto its muscles to soothe the pain. And it doesn't, doesn't then swallow the leaves. So it's not like a byproduct of something else that they're doing. They spit the leaves out and get rid of those. Yeah. Um, what they've had is um, they've taken almost 20,000 hours of observational data over 15 years from the Savangao uh, forest in Borneo. And they've seen seven instances of, uh, I think it's mostly or exclusively female orangutans doing this behavior um, of self-medicating with these plants. And it's, it's amazing. Um, because they, you know, we, we know of other primates using tools to break open food, things they're trying to eat, or to get um, insects out of their burrows, but we've never seen them use a kind of medicine before. And they think that it's mostly uh, the female orangutans um, to soothe pains that come from carrying the extra weight of an infant, and that's why they think <laughs> it might be specific to the females as wow. well. Yeah. 
That's, abso that's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yes, it's. Uh, um, they say that self-medication has only been observed seven times. Yeah. Uh, and on one of these occasions, the team studying uh, the the animals was able to capture it on camera. Uh, the footage, as you say, showed a female orangutan called Indy applying the plant-based lather, so they make it into a lather, uh, to her upper arm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, there's something really uh, beautiful about that. Um, and, and, of course opens up uh, a whole area of anthropology as well as to whether we've learned from animals mm, yeah uh, and animals have learned from us yeah and it's it's because i don't know whether or not it's you know specific to one if, if there's a subspecies or one particular area it you know it could be read even as a kind of um a cultural thing if it, like some some areas the orangutans don't do this and only in one area they do um but of course they've got a lot of data to work through about that and Maybe we'll hear more about it in the future. It is, it, uh, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say it's really nice to see things with fluffy orange hair being clever about science. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you just get that one in quick. Yeah, so we know what goes. Get your political comment here <laughs> on love and science. Um, and it's great we've got John Ford with us, everybody. Hello. Uh, hi, John. Hello. Nice, to, nice to have you. Stay tuned because after the news, that's if we play. By the way, I didn't get to apologise. Uh, because of the, uh, we had a problem. Uh, the, the show, we, we we didn't hear the news from Sky before. Maybe we will this time. John's magic may uh, uh, cause that to happen. But stay tuned <laughs> because after uh, after uh, the news or whatever is played, uh, John will be here getting uh, Bristol home. Hello, news or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is you do. Or whatever. <laughs> no one really. Whatever. No one really knows what you're doing here. Sorry, Karen. What did we miss? Yeah. What did we miss? What did we miss? Um, this day in 1969, uh, this is one for Andrew, actually, the first docking of the two-manned spacecraft took place um, between the Soviet Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5, this day in 1969, wow. first time. Yeah. Yeah. It was the first time that, that men had gone up on one spaceship and came back on another. Oh, OK. Cool, Fancy, I didn't yeah. that. Yeah. Nice. Well, we still don't do that much these days. No, we don't. No, no. no this day in 1759, what opened in London? Any guesses? Um, an institution slum today people uh, still go there the royal yeah, institution? institution nope close um but no cigar the british museum Ooh. opened on this day in 1759 do you know um who established it somebody called robert no i can't remember. Oh, it was established when king george ii gave his royal assent to an act of parliament apparently to acquire the collection of sir hans sloan oh as in sloan square oh, oh. So there you go Fancy. Well, well, because uh, they, uh, they, they designed them like churches, apparently, museums. Yes. Because they wanted to establish them as, you know, this is the, these are the new places. The, science is the new religion. I'll tell oh, you really? uh, one yeah. other thing that happened on this day as well, in 1999, kind of science-ish, but it was in Boston in, in Massachusetts in America, that um, a molasses processing plant... Uh, Given, you know, this was getting on for 100 years ago, 99 years ago, um, an immense vat burst flooding its contents onto the street of heavy molasses. Ooh. It killed 21 people and injured 150 people. Uh, oh compared with the tragedy at the, the Horseshoe Brewery in London, when, uh, which was 1814, when 3,555 barrels of porter beer swept through the streets. Oh, good wow. That that would be <laughs> what? what a way, way to, to go. go. Yeah. <laughs> what a way to go. Absolutely. Did they recover the beard? Well, you mean? 
Uh, I don't think so, no. <laughs> it's easier to pick up the molasses. <laughs> well, look, stay tuned for uh, uh, John Ford and getting Bristol home after the news. Uh, uh, big thanks, of course, to uh, Andrew and Hannah and, and uh, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being with us. Uh, have yourselves a very good evening, and don't forget to listen to Love and Science again next week. Thank you.